If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 22 is where we'll be today. We're going to start in verse 39. We're going to read the text together, and then we'll talk about what it might mean for us. So Luke 22, starting in verse 39. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. This event happens immediately after Jesus has the first Lord's Supper supper with his disciples. He goes east out of Jerusalem. He walks across the Kidron Valley and he goes up to the Mount of Olives. You can still walk the exact path today. And Luke is a little ambiguous. He just says he went up and found the place. I think the reason that he's ambiguous like that is because this is a place that Jesus would have gone very regularly. It was just the place. But in Matthew and Mark's account, they give us more detail, and they tell us that the place was a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden that was used as an olive press. And so this place that they go is a place where There is crushing that takes place. And I think that's a fitting symbol for what happens to Jesus in the garden. It's late Thursday night or maybe early Friday. Judas has already left to betray Jesus. In just a couple of hours, Jesus will be arrested by the Jewish leaders And by three o'clock, he'll be dead. The scene in the garden is horrific. This is maybe the most sobering passage in the Bible. It is utterly horrifying. Jesus is in terrible agony. Matthew and Mark give us some other details that Luke does not include. They say that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. The words that they use mean that Jesus was in absolute terror. He said about himself in Mark, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. He collapsed onto the ground and he laid face down 
likely weeping as he prays. Luke tells us something that the other two don't, and that is that he was in anguish. The word anguish in verse 44 is a word that literally means to be in a fist fight, to be wrestling, to be grasping and struggling for your life. Luke also tells us a detail that the others don't, and that is that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know if he's being literal or figurative. There is a medical condition called hematidrosis. It's very rare. There are only a handful of occurrences of it in the entire 20th century that we're aware of. The most common occurrence of this rare medical condition is a young soldier before he goes into battle. There is such intensity, there is such horror, there is such dejection in the soul that you you start to sweat blood. Jesus is utterly horrified. His soul is in torment and he is fighting intensely in his soul. The question that I want to think about today is why? Why is Jesus in such agony in the garden? Why is he in such anguish? Why such terror? And the answer, he says in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. The answer is because of what's in his cup. So what's in the cup? What is the thing that Jesus is horrified to swallow? What is this drink of despair? Some think this is kind of a stupid question. Like, isn't it obvious? In just a couple hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten, flogged. He's going to go to the cross and die. Isn't it obvious that the physical suffering he's about to endure is horrifying? The torture, the beating, the flogging, the bleeding, the nails. Isn't it obvious? And then when you combine that physical suffering with the mental, emotional, psychological pain that he's about to experience, he's going to be betrayed He's going to be denied by his best friend. He's going to be deserted by his closest friends. He's going to be mocked and humiliated and abused publicly. The psychological toll that would take on someone combined with the physical suffering, doesn't it make sense that Jesus is in agony? 
Of course he's distressed. Of course he's in anguish. Of course he's horrified. But as horrifying as all of those things are, they are not what's in the cup. Jesus is not afraid of the beatings, the insults, and the crucifixion that's awaiting him. That would be inconsistent with what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived. Do you know what Jesus taught his followers? Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they, per- they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus taught his followers, look, don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of people who can kill your body. Don't be, a- don't be afraid when you get mistreated and persecuted. In fact, be glad and rejoice. So is Jesus a hypocrite in the garden? Is he someone who... He talks a big game, but he can't live up to it. He's all talk. Is Jesus a hypocrite? Jesus is not afraid of the beatings, the insults, and the crucifixion because not only is that contrary to what he taught, but it's also contrary to how he lived. It does not fit with his character to be afraid of that. This is the man who calmed storms, who walked on water, who drove out demons, who overthrew tables in the temple. The whole point of the Gospel of Luke so far has been for us to see that Jesus has all authority. He's the guy who sleeps in peace while others are panicking. Jesus, it would not be consistent with who he was for him to be cowering now in fear over what awaits him. John Stott, who was a British theologian, scholar, brilliant man, He writes in his book, The Cross of Christ. His physical and moral courage throughout his public ministry had been indomitable. To me, it is ludicrous to suppose that he was now afraid of pain, insult, and death. Socrates, in the prison cell in Athens, according to Plato's account, took his cup of hemlock without trembling or changing color or expression. He then raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear, sorrow, or protest. So was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were their cups filled with different 
poisons. What's in the cup? It's not just the physical torture he's about to endure. And it's not just the emotional and psychological pain he's about to endure. That would not be consistent with what he taught or how he lived. So what's in the cup? Jesus is horrified because he knows that the cup he must drink is God's wrath. In the Old Testament, the cup is a symbol of many things, but one of the main ideas behind the image of drinking the cup is suffering and judgment. To drink the cup means to suffer God's judgment. Listen to Job chapter 21, verse 20. This is speaking of the wicked, evil person. Let his own eyes see his demise. Let him drink from the Almighty's wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. Jesus is about to drink that cup. Jesus is about to take on the sin of the world and be judged He's going to be sentenced to God's wrath. That's what's in the cup. And why is that Jesus' cup to drink? Because God is a God who is good and trustworthy. Because he's good and trustworthy, the reason that you can trust him is because God is a God who is angered and takes action over evil. God is not a God who sees injustice and says, we're just going to sweep that under the rug. He's not a God who sees injustice and says, well, hmm. It's too bad. Instead, God is a God who sees injustice and acts. And that's bad news for us. It's good news in one sense because it means we can trust him. That's what you need out of authority. You don't need authorities who look at evil and say, what do you want me to do about it? It's not a big deal. Get over it. You need authorities who see evil and act. So on one hand, God is trustworthy. He's good. It's good that he's that way. On the other hand, it is terrifying because all of us are sinners who deserve to pay. We can't distinguish between justice and injustice, you know, in here and out there because the river of injustice runs through each one of us. We all deserve to pay. 
So God is a God of justice who demands payment. He's a God of wrath who takes action over evil. But he's also a God of love. And because he loves sinners, he sent his son, Jesus, to the earth. Jesus volunteers to come and go to Jerusalem so that he can go to the cross and die in the place of sinners. Jesus goes to the cross and dies to pay your debt so that you can go free. God in his justice demanded payment for sin. God in his grace makes the payment. That's why Jesus is going to the cross. No verse describes this better than Isaiah chapter 53, verse five and six. Listen to this. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Why does Jesus drink this cup? So that you don't have to. And for Jesus to drink this cup, he must endure some level of separation from his father. Now, we gotta be careful as we think about this because there is a oneness in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that can't be separated. And yet, we also have to acknowledge that for Jesus to bear the wrath of God, something was experienced in their relationship that was utterly horrifying and different than the joy they had always experienced. Tabidi Onyubile, he's a pastor in D.C. He writes something that I think is helpful in grasping this. He says, on that dark midday on Golgotha, referring to when Jesus was on the cross. When the sun refused to shine, the unimaginable and indescribable happened. That beautiful, shining, loving face of the Father withdrew into the dark, frowning, punishing face of wrath. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. The Son of God himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, He became accursed for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And when our sins were laid upon him, then Jesus felt the full, horrible truth of Habakkuk 1.13, that God the Father's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. At three o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, 
wrath rained down like a million Sodoms and Gomorrahs. In the terror and agony of it all, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The anticipation of experiencing that. The anticipation of bearing the weight of sin and taking God's wrath. It breaks him. It just breaks him. And so do you realize what hangs in the balance here in the garden? In Luke chapter four, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And it says, after he had overcome that temptation, the devil departed for him until an opportune time. And here Jesus is hours before he's going to be arrested and his path to the cross will be sealed. And Jesus starts to face the temptation to give up the cup. And so what does he do? He stays up all night fighting in prayer. Do you see what hangs in the balance here? If Jesus doesn't take the cup, you will. But he fights and he wins. And he says, Father, if there's no way for this cup to pass from me, if there's no other way to save sinners, then not what I will, but yours be done. Jesus resolved right here in the garden once and for all to go to the cross. He resolved to drink the cup. He stayed up all night praying, fighting for you. Our future was made sure this night in the garden when Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. That's what hung in the balance. I think it's interesting. In Luke's version of this account, he uses what scholars call an inclusio. That just means he starts with the same line that he ends with. In verse 40, he says, pray that you may not fall into temptation. And then in verse 46, he says, get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So I think the right response to this account in the garden is for us to pray. 
And there are two prayers that I think we need to pray. The first is praying for God to save you so that you do not fall into the temptation of rejecting Jesus. There is a battle going on right now for some of your souls. Your flesh, your inner thoughts are saying, do not take Jesus too seriously. The world is saying how absurd it is to deny yourself and obey someone else's will. That's absurd. And even the devil himself is fighting to deceive you, to tempt you into rejecting Jesus. So Jesus says, pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Pray for God to save you from your sins. What does that prayer look like? It's very simple. It's not magical or mystical. It's just an earnest prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I have rebelled against you and I deserve to pay. I deserve your wrath. And God, there's nothing I can do to save myself. So God, my only appeal is Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So God, would you save me? Do not give in to temptation. Pray for God to save you. I think there's a second prayer that we need to pray. And that is to pray for the strength to take the cup that God has for you. Jesus took the cup of wrath Praise God for that. You do not have to drink that cup, but God does have a cup for you. Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, we've been talking about this the last several weeks. He said, look, if you wanna be my follower, you know where we're going, right? We're going to the cross. So if you're gonna follow me, you've gotta deny yourself and take up your cross and come with me. That's what it means to be a follower of mine. And so we do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath because Jesus took that cup for us. But God does have a cup that will be costly. So what's in your cup? What does obedience to God look like for you? I think it's interesting in this text Jesus knows there's a cup he has to drink. He doesn't want to drink it. And so how does he fight the battle? He stays up all night praying. And God even sends an angel to strengthen him in the fight. 
And what are the disciples doing? They're asleep. They're sleeping. And in just a little bit, they're going to lose their fight. Now, praise God for his grace. They end up, you know, getting back in the battle. But let me ask you something. Do you want to be a sleeper or a fighter? Do you want to be lazy or vigilant? What kind of man or woman are you going to be? Jesus is calling you to get up and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Get up, do your work, come home, do your work. Get a vision for your life. Be intentional. Don't sleep your life away. There's a pastor named John Piper who makes an interesting observation about this passage. He says, it's remarkable to me here that when he says the flesh is weak and the spirit is willing, that's in Matthew and Mark's version, he's not mainly talking about sex. He's talking about weariness. See, a lot of times we'll say something like, my flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong or the spirit is willing when we're talking about overcoming the temptation to have some kind of sexual sin. But what he's talking about here is weariness. The temptation is just to fall asleep. And as I think about that in my life, that's so many times the temptation that I am most prone to give into. I'm just too tired to read my Bible. I'm too tired to pray. I'm too tired to try and lead my family in any kind of Christian discipline. I've been at work all day. When I come home, I'm just too tired. I'm too tired to have that conversation with that person. I'm too tired to serve that family in that way. I'm too tired to have them over to our house. I'm just too tired. I just want to come home and sit. And John Piper says, well, you will be a sitting duck to the devil if you yield to that kind of lifestyle. What kind of man or woman do you want to be? What kind of men and women should we be in light of what our Savior has done for us? A Savior who stayed up all night before the worst day imaginable. He stayed up all night fighting for you. So what's in the cup that God has for you? Will you drink it? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending your son to take the cup of wrath for us. Father, I pray for someone who might be listening who doesn't know you. Would you introduce yourself? Would you give them faith to trust that it's only in Jesus and the blood that he shed that we can be forgiven? God, would you lift our eyes 
What you strengthened Jesus with in the garden was the joy that was set before him. And it was that joy that enabled him to endure the cross. And so God, would you strengthen us with that joy too? Would you help us lift our eyes and see the glory that awaits when, it, when we follow after your son? And would we be men and women who do not sleep, but who fight? Would we be a church that is fully awake and in the battle? And would you receive all of the praise and glory? Would we fight with your strength and for your glory? It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.